0: All right, John chapter 7, we're going to be picking up in verse 28. Uh, You'll see the title of the sermon is, The Tensions Rising. You know, Jesus is in the middle of teaching at the temple, and he's in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is where we've been at contextually. And his teaching, as we've looked at, was amazing, was incredible. In fact, we've said, you ain't never heard anyone teach like Jesus Christ. That's going to be one of the fascinating. People think you get to heaven, you're going to be bored. Well, if you are, just go sit at the feet of Jesus. I guarantee you're going to enjoy what he's talking about whenever he's talking in eternity, right? His teaching's great. The religious leaders are like, well, where did you get this from? Jesus starts to explain where they got it from. Then Jesus, remember, calls them out and says, you guys want to kill me. The audience is like, "What's he? what are you talking about? Are you nuts? And so Jesus is calling out the motives of their heart. He understands that they're, even in that moment, seeking an opportunity to kill him. And then Jesus goes on to explain their Sabbath hypocrisy Because as we said before, religious people, especially legalists, are hypocrites. By nature, they can't be consistent. And so we see that borne out here. Jesus has called them out. And when he does that, he does it in an aggressive way. And you would think if they hated him, want to kill him, that they would then seize that opportunity to grab him. But what we looked at last week is when Jesus said all this, it left them speechless. They were like deer in headlights. They didn't know what to do with this guy who was just (laughs) shutting them down every turn, right? The crowd starts saying, this is weird. We know they hate him, but they're not doing anything to him. Maybe he's the Christ. Maybe, maybe they're hiding this from us. So they start to speculate. And when Jesus sees that the crowd is speculating, he now responds. That's what we're going to look at this morning. But to do that, let's kind of ramp up and read before we get to verse 28. Let's read verses 25 through 27. It says, now some of them, From Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. What we're going to see this morning is Jesus is now going to get their attention. He's going to try to confirm for them, this is my identity. This is who I am. And what's going to happen is the leader's going to say, you know what? We've had enough. And they're going to start putting their plan to grab Jesus into motion. We're going to see, it's kind of funny at the end, they're, they're not going to be successful, but, but it's because they're not on God's timetable yet. God is going to allow them to be successful six months from now, in, in terms of six months from John 7, they're going to be successful. We'll get there when we get there. All right, so in verse 28 through 29, Jesus, it says, cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me. And you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. It's interesting because when you look at the life of Jesus, in fact, we just saw this earlier. I've got the verse up there in 715, where Jesus seems to be able to either understand what the crowd is saying. Maybe he's, he's overheard the conversation. Maybe he can read body language to understand what they're saying. Or it's possible, he's using his divine attribute of omniscience in this case, that the father basically allowed him to utilize that in this case, where he kind of knows what they're thinking, knows what they're talking about. Could be as simple as he overheard them. He understood what they're talking about. And because of that, he now tries to get their attention. Remember, he's in the temple. He's in the temple compound. He's near a pillar. All the pillars had different rabbis stationed at them during this feast, teaching their own group of people. So there's a large crowd of people, large crowd of people going around. And so he cries out. This is probably one of my favorite parts of English class when you got to talk about onomatopoeias. Remember onomatopoeias? This just it's like rolls off your tongue. It's kind of exciting. This is actually one of those onomatopoeias in the Greek language, this word that's translated cried out. It means that it, the word itself sounds like the definition of the word. Is kind of the idea. English majors, am I okay on that? I feel like that's what an onomatopoeia is. <laughs> Anyways, I did pass English, but... Sometimes it probably seems like it's my second language, but it's not. So it, it, it's this word cried out. It imitates a hoarse cry of a raven. It's a vehement outcry. It's, it's to scream or to shriek, it's even used in some Greek literature. And so what it communicates is there's some intensity and volume to what Jesus is about to say. In fact, he's going to do it again on the final day of the feast. If you jump down to verse 37, it's the same exact word. And it's a large crowd, he's trying to get their attention, he's, he's making a point, he's saying something emphatic, this is kind of what's drawn out here. And here's what he says, you both know me and you know where I'm from. So he, he says these are these two things. Now it's really fascinating because guess what they had just said in verse 27, however we know where this man is from. And Jesus is now saying, you know what, you're right. But it's kind of a subtle thing that he's saying here, and we're going to bring that out as we go, because this is exactly what the crowd thinks. They think they know him. They think they know where he's from. In fact, they think because of how they know him and they know where he's from that this discounts him from being the Messiah. The problem with their knowledge is they're wrong in their final assessment. They have some knowledge of Jesus. There's some things they know about Jesus that are correct, but they only know where he's from superficially. And we'll talk more about that. Because they believed he was from Nazareth, and so that meant he was born in Nazareth. And, and you know, people assume that kind of stuff today. You know, if you grew up somewhere, it doesn't mean you were born there, right? I mean, that's those are two different things. And oftentimes, people assume that. Well, they were assuming that in Jesus. Did Jesus grow up in Nazareth? Yes. Was he born in Nazareth? No. He was born where? Bethlehem. That's exactly right. That's our Christmas story. But they're superficially they superficially know him. And so Jesus is going to say, "You both know me and where I'm from. You you know these things superficially." And he's going to use this word. And, and, you know, sometimes we make a big deal about the meaning of Greek words here, but, but I want you to pay really close attention because there's a couple of words the Greek language uses for knowing or knowledge. So let me just point out what this word means. He, Jesus says, you know me, and he's going to use the same word, know where I'm from. He's going to say that they know him intuitively and instinctually. And he's speaking about his human or earthly uh, or their human and earthly knowledge of him. He's saying, yeah, you guys know me. You know where I'm from. And, and and you know, it's funny because Mark chapter 6, verse 3, this is what people knew about him. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. See, people knew Jesus and knew where he was from. We have other passages that says, Isn't this the son of Joseph? They they knew these things about him, but they didn't truly. Know him. It was a superficial knowledge. However, the implication is they should actually know him more, right? They they have a superficial knowledge, but why should they know him more? And this is really the whole point of the book of John, is because everything that Jesus has been doing, and this is what we've got to understand, all the miracles Jesus did. It wasn't like he rolled out of bed one morning and said, I feel like healing someone blind today. Let me just check that off my to-do list. It wasn't that at all. There were prophesied miracles in the Old Testament to give the Jews a clue and an understanding that when this man showed up doing things that no one had ever done, that that's the man. That's him. It it was this clue. And it was like God just left breadcrumbs in the Old Testament for all of the Jews to be able to see this is the Messiah. They should have had confidence that this was him. Not get distracted because he's from Nazareth. And to believe some mystical teaching that was going around in that day, oh, when Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. He's just going to uh, appear from out of thin air. That's not true at all. Micah 5.2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem, right? There's, there's some detailed prophecy on how to recognize him. So he was performing divine and prophesied miracles. He was also saying things that no one had ever said before, making connections, In the Old Testament, that no one had ever made before. All of these things should have keyed them off that Jesus was a little bit different than anybody else. And if you haven't found that to be true, stick around. Jesus is a little bit different than anyone or any person you've ever seen. You know, there we go. My, My screen went dark for a second, so I was about to make a joke. It came back on. All right. So so here's. Here's the point on the knowledge, okay? We talked about oida, that's knowing intuitively or instinctively. What this group needed was gnosko. It's a different form of knowledge. They needed to gain knowledge through observation picked up over time. See, God was not doing things in a vacuum. He wasn't like, hey, if you want to see Jesus perform a miracle, come over here and pay five bucks and we got limited seating. Right, he's doing it publicly, He's giving people an opportunity to observe and examine. And Jesus, let me just tell you, Jesus wasn't stretching someone's leg an inch farther. Give me a break. That's not a a real miracle. This is real miracle. Blind from birth, we're gonna see in chapter nine. An infirm man for almost 40 years in chapter five, and he literally gives him strength in his legs in a moment, and the man gets up. He's doing things. We're not even going to get to this in John. It's crazy. John records seven signs. He doesn't even record anything about him healing lepers. That's huge. That's monstrously huge. But that's in the other gospel accounts. These are the things Jesus is doing. They should have gained knowledge of Jesus. This is the problem. They just thought they already already know that. Already knew him. And people do that with the word of God too. I already know John 3.16. Don't tell me that again. Oh, I already know this. I already know that. Move on to something I don't know. Trust me, we would do better to start responding to the things we do know instead of trying to gain more information to stack on top of what we're not even enjoying right now. It's incredible the way that we think, but people do think this way. They, oh, I already know Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's from, no way. He's off the chart. He he can't even be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth. We know where he's from. We won't know where the Messiah. This is their attitude. Jesus is basically uh, insinuating, you should have, kept on gaining in your knowledge. You should have been paying attention to what I'm doing. In fact, they know where he's from. Same, same Greek word, No. How should they know? The implication, they should know more, right? And this is exactly, it's the same answer. Why should they know? Because of the miracles he's doing, because of the teaching he's providing. What's really fascinating is, uh, is, is we see actually earlier in the book of John, somebody who was a religious leader who was actually gaining this gnosco knowledge of Jesus Christ by observing him and recognizing there was something, someone different about him. And you guys will remember his name, Nicodemus. In fact, notice what Nicodemus says. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Okay, Nicodemus, how do you know that? How can you be so confident that Jesus is a teacher come from God? Look at that very next word in the verse four. He's going to explain why for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus wasn't getting hung up on how Jesus was doing the signs. When Jesus was doing the signs, he was getting hung up on the right thing to get hung up. How does this man able to do this? That's what he was focused on. And when he saw that, he reasoned from that point point said, "You, God's got to be with you. And then he's Wants to ask him some questions. We know how that handled. Jesus just went right for the jugular in a good way, right? He said, Nicodemus, I know you probably got millions of questions, but bro, you need to be born again. You need a new birth. Let's talk about how you get into the kingdom. Let's talk about how you get into eternity. Let's talk about how I'm going to die for you and rise again so that you don't have to pay for your own sin, that you don't have to stand in your own righteousness before me. I will provide my righteousness for you, Nicodemus, if you'll just trust in me. In fact, John three sixteen is in the context of his conversation with Nicodemus. We've looked at that when we studied through. So their knowledge is incomplete. This group needed to continue to follow the breadcrumbs. What's really interesting after what Jesus says, we're going to see that some of them do follow the breadcrumbs. Look at verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. So some are going to become convinced. Oh yeah, this is the Messiah. We're going to trust in him, in him alone. But here's what they needed to know. And this is what Jesus is crying out to get their attention. He says, you both know me, you know where I'm from. And then he says this, and I have not come of myself. Jesus, I believe here, and in, 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 you're kind of looking at some language things here to try to understand exactly what he's talking about. But I believe he's just saying he doesn't have a normal human origin. You know, they were saying, well, you won't know where the Messiah is from. Jesus is saying, well, you'll know where he's from, but it's not going to be a normal Human origin. There's something unique going on here. And when you combine Isaiah seven fourteen, which we read every Christmas, with Micah five two, can you see there were some breadcrumbs that God left the astute Jewish person to start making these types of connections? And so the phrase of my of myself uses this Greek preposition apo, which means interesting. It's separation of a person or an object from another person or an object with which it was formerly united, but is now separated. Now, he's probably using this preposition to describe his physical birth from Mary, saying that, that he didn't create that himself, but that, that the Godhead did. But also what's really interesting about that is, is when we go to Isaiah 9, 6, again, kind of bringing in some Christmas verses because Jesus is talking about his origin. His origin is not earthly. Isaiah 9, 6 says it well. It says this, unto us a child is born oppo for Mary. Is a child separated from their mother at birth? Yes, they should be, right? That's otherwise it'd be very unhealthy running, you know, the umbilical cord dragging them around. You know, you see people now with leashes on their kids. It'd be really weird if the umbilical cord is still uh, holding their kids in place so they're not running away. But there's a separation from Mary. Unto us a child is born, but notice unto us a son is given. He's oppo. He's been separated from the father in terms of his abode in heaven. And this is actually going to bring us to the next point. That's why I think contextually, this is kind of what uh, he's talking about. Because notice what he says uh, next. He says, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. In other words, I haven't come of myself, but the Father has sent me. That's why I've been, I've come from heaven. I've been separated, if you will, from my abode in heaven because the Father sent me. He didn't originate from himself. He didn't independently decide to show up on the scene. He was actually sent as an emissary on mission from the triune Godhead. This is what he's explaining to the people here. And notice that the one who sent him is described as as true. See that there in the phrase, he who sent me is true. What does that mean? What is the implication? Well, if the one who sent me is true, then guess what? I'm true. I'm simply representing the one who sent me. He's true, thus I'm true. What do they think about Jesus? Oh, he's a deceiver, you can't trust him. He's a deceiver, we gotta shut him up. We gotta silence him. And Jesus is saying, no, you're you're reasoning from the wrong direction. If he sent me, we know that he's true, then I'm telling you the truth because I've come from him. This is really the argument that he's making here. Now, Jesus is quick to point out that although his audience knew him, Oida, where he was from, who he was from an earthly vantage point. They did not know the father. You see how he contrasts that? He's like, you know me, you know where I'm from, but you don't know God the father. And what were they saying? Well, we know you and where you're from and we know God the father. and We know you can't be from him because of all these things that were obstacles in their thinking relating to Jesus Christ. And so since they didn't know God, they couldn't have confidence in his emissary or the one whom he had sent. This is what Jesus is simply pointing out to them. And this is why they're having so much trouble understanding his true origin and his identity. And, you know, give them credit. I mean, they did have prophecy, but if a guy shows up and says, I'm, I'm God, you know, I mean, let, let's be honest, that would be very problematic. And now today it would be a super problematic because there's no prophecy indicating that's going to happen again. For these people, they could have known, again, had they followed the breadcrumbs, asked additional questions, clearly Nicodemus, his tentacles were up seeing what he was seeing from a prophetic uh, side of things. And so it was was obviously recognizable, but you can see how the average person maybe who just kind of fell asleep in synagogue, talked during synagogue, didn't pay close attention, might've just kind of glossed over the understanding of of what Jesus was saying and the prophesied uh, relevance of what he was doing. And so in contrast to the audience, does Jesus know God the Father? Yeah, he does. This is exactly what he says. I know him. Uh, in fact, he he knows him intuitively and instinctively. He keeps using this Greek word "oida" because they've lived in perfect fellowship from eternity past. Of course, he knows the Father. It, you know, of course, he knows him. He's he's been with him for eternity. He remains in fellowship with him now, and that's actually brought out by the perfect tense in the Greek. They continue to live in intimate knowledge. Jesus isn't saying, yeah, you know, I I was really close to the father before I left heaven and and I need to get caught up with him, you know, at some point and get close to him again. He said, I was, no, I was close to him and I remain intimately, I know him. I just, I just know my father. I know the father is what he's saying. And the reason he gives for knowing him, notice that word for, I'm from him and he sent me. Four again gives us a reason, a further explanation why Jesus can say that he knows the Father. He's not bragging. He's not saying, oh yeah, I read all the manuals on him. I read, you know, I've got the Old Testament memorized, so I know him. He's just saying, I I I'm from Him. <laughs> he sent me. I, of course I know him. And here's what's really interesting, and I and I love these little uh, these little nuanced things that sometimes you see in the Greek language, and it, and it sounds so dumb. It's a preposition. You're like, oh my gosh, bore me with grammar, right? But, but what's really cool about this preposition, uh, the Greek word from, when he says, I am from him, I think it's a strategically used preposition. I think Jesus is communicating something here that can't go unnoticed. It's the Greek preposition para, P-A-R, you can see it up there, P-A-R-A. It means nearness, nearby, expressing the notion of immediate vicinity or proximity. This isn't that God just sent Jesus, but the idea is that, he, that Jesus was near to his heart in relational intimacy, and he was sent from that position. What a beautiful picture. And then you, and then you see Jesus on the cross later. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time that the Son of God experienced separation from his Father, it was overwhelming for him almost to bear. Because this is the truth of the matter. They are near and close as near and close can be. That's the point. And Jesus is describing that here. I came, the idea is I came straight from the Father's heart. I wasn't just some random, you know, sales guy out there, part of a sales force that, you know, they sent me to Buffalo, you know, It's like, I came from his heart, is kind of the idea that's being communicated here by Jesus. Notice it doesn't, uh, and this is what's always interesting. So so go to verse 30. I I know we're going to kind of jump ahead here. Well, let's just move ahead. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him. Notice that word, therefore. He's building out of, this, this narrative is building out of what Jesus said. In other words, what they're about to do is based on what Jesus just said. And I say that to say that sometimes, you know, we're like, well, we make a big deal about a preposition, but understand why we do, because they have a very uh, aggressive and angry reaction to what he said. And my point is this, I think they picked up on the nuance that I just brought out. Because he's claiming a, a nearness, a relational intimacy with the father. They think he's a deceiver. They think he's leading the people astray. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming from the very heart of God that you claim to worship. And I think they get upset. They've had enough. In fact, that's exactly what they say in verse 30. Therefore, they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This word sought, it's been used a lot in this passage in chapter 7. It means to look for or to strive to find right, guys? If you're looking for the ketchup, you got to look behind the milk, right? It's like you can't just say, where's the ketchup? You got to kind of look around a little bit. It's this idea that you're looking, you're really striving to find, you're moving things out of the way to really see. It's, it's, it describes this uh, earnestness or anxiety or an intensity of pursuit. And one of the things that's also brought out in the verb tense, it's imperfect. It means it's constant, nonstop, ongoing pursuit to take Jesus in other words they're look they're constantly looking for a way to take him that's their mindset now they're not listening to him anymore they're just looking for a way to to maybe catch him in a back alley and take him out that's what they're looking for they're striving earnestly to do that at this point in time in fact the word take it's an interesting word it means to press, to squeeze, to compress, or to hold fast. And I don't think they were trying to give Jesus a hug. That's not what that word means. They're trying to seize him. They're trying to lay hold of him. Now, what they're going to do with him at this point, we find out later they're, they're, they're dancing a, a delicate line here because they don't have the authority to execute him under Roman rule. So they're, maybe they don't quite know. They're just going to seize him at this point, try to set him up, for execution maybe they're working through that plans now but this word take is a very aggressive word if you've ever been hunting or fishing this would be a, a word that could be used when you when you grab an animal that you're hunting or fishing you know maybe maybe a fish is fighting real hard and you know the, you could tell the lines about to break and you're like man I got to get a net on that thing you know and so you you reach out you grab it you you seize it that's kind of the word that's used here and so they've had enough. You can, you can tell, like, they've reached their limit. They've had enough with Jesus. They're after him. Now, one of the things that's really fascinating is the very next phrase, but no one laid a hand on him. They're angry. They're upset. He's clearly offended them, but no one laid their hand on him. No one had an aggressive movement to, to grab him. Now, that's, that's a fascinating statement because if he's offended the religious leaders, they should have every right to grab him, Right? If he's actually done something wrong, they should have the authority to now grab him and put him into custody. But it's fascinating because it says no one laid a hand on him, not even one. And we're going to see this concept repeated a couple times later in this account as we kind of work down through chapter 7. We're going to see it when we get to chapter 8. Remember, chapter 8 is still part of this scene during the Feast of Tabernacles, at least the aftermath of of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the same trip. So we're going to see this repeated uh, a couple couple of different ways. Now, one of the things that we're going to see is there's a human reason for this. But there's also a divine reason for this. There's, the human reason uh, is we're going to find in verse 46. Let's just take it. Uh, let's just jump down there real quick. It's kind of funny. Verse, actually, let's go to verse 45 of, of chapter 7. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why have you not brought him? Speaking of Jesus, they, they're going to see in verse 32, they're going to give them the command to go take Jesus. And notice what they say. And it's just kind of funny. 46, the officer's answers. No man ever spoke like this, man. That's the reason. I don't want to touch this guy. (laughs) I've never heard anyone talk like this before. There's something special about it. That's kind of what they're communicating. So there's a human reason for this. The the officers themselves could not even bring themselves to carry out the orders they'd been given. You can imagine how difficult. You ever had your boss somewhere along the line get angry with you and through gritted teeth tell you to do something? And then you didn't do it. Usually that ends up in getting fired. Usually you just, whatever. Boss is gritting his teeth. I, I'm going to go do it as long as it's not like, you know, something wrong. <laughs> I'm going to go do it. But, but here they are through gritted teeth. They tell these men, go get this guy. And they come back and they're like, looking around, where is he? I've, no one's ever talked like this guy before. It's like, they're not even doing what their bosses told them to do. So there's a human reason. But, but the divine side the divine side is really the key. And this is what we're going to see here in this very next phrase. In fact, it, it explains it a little bit more clearly here uh, in verse 30, because one of the things, and I, and I love this from one commentator said, the religious leaders could not lay a hand on him because the father's hand was over him. And Jesus was literally untouchable until he wasn't. It's really the, the thing that we're going to see in terms of timing. And so the religious leaders wanted to take him, but they just weren't on the wrong, they were just on the wrong schedule. Kind of like daylight savings time, but thank God for smartphones, right? They got us all here at the right time. But they were just on the wrong timing. Um, and he says, because his hour had not yet come. And so what does he mean by this phrase? What, what is John saying here? He uses this phrase. Hour uh, or my time. He uses it like eight times, eight other times in the book of John. And so you can kind of see the the references there. we well, to jump ahead, I actually see a little bit of a distinction between his hour and his time. And let me just talk about, let's talk about the hour because that's what's recorded here. I think it's defined for us in, in John 12, 24 through 27. Okay. And, and I've kind of tried to highlight the phrases that I think go together. And then we'll kind of, let's read it through and we'll talk about it. So John 12, 24 through 27, most assuredly, uh, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, he's just giving an agricultural example. You know, whether you realize or not, if you've ever seen those kind of like real life videos where like underground, you put a seed in the ground, you can kind of see it decay. It starts to decay. The sheen of the seed starts to wear off. It starts to kind of decay into nothing. And then life springs out of death. The death of the seed, life springs out of death. This is what he's describing here, talking about his own death. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now, notice, now my soul is troubled. Why? You're just talking about harvesting and agriculture. Why is your soul troubled? Because you can see it's an illustration for what he's about to do in his death, And what shall I say? Father, save me, look at this, from this hour. But for this purpose, what purpose? His death, his cross work, his resurrection. For this purpose, I came to this hour. You know, if, if your view of Jesus is that he was a great teacher and that he came to teach a lot of good moral lessons to the world, you're missing the primary purpose for why he came. And it has to do with you. And and oftentimes we don't make that connection that we were in a perilous situation, that we deserved death, that we did not possess righteousness to get to heaven. No matter how many candles you lit, how many churches you went to, how much money you gave, none of that could make up the fact that you had a debt that you could not pay and you have messed up the righteousness level in your life. You're not perfect. Jesus came for the very purpose to save us from a hell that we deserve to take us to a heaven that we didn't. And this is what's so beautiful about what he's saying. There was an hour planned by the triune Godhead to solve your biggest problem. And all God wants you to do is to look back on that day in human history where the son of God climbed a hill and was nailed to a tree for you. And to look at that day and recognize that that was the day he dealt with your sin. Yeah, Jesus died, but he dealt with your sin that day so that you wouldn't have to deal with your sin in the future because you had a Savior that did it for you 2,000 years ago. And then three days later, in case you were wondering, well, should I really trust Jesus or not? He blew him out of the grave. He raised him from the dead. You can trust this Savior. He's conquered death. He's paid the penalty in full. And the Bible actually says that when you put your faith in him, he credits his righteousness to your account. I'll, I'll take that deal any day. Because I know I don't deserve it. I would not even, I couldn't even get into heaven on my best day. On my best day, I couldn't walk into heaven. And yet, on my worst day, I'm qualified. Mind-blowing. That's called grace. God giving you something you don't deserve. Because he gave Christ what you did deserve. It's just a beautiful good news that we're privileged to preach. And so I kind of got distracted, but that's his hour, right? This is what he's talking about. And John is telling his readers, Jesus' hour hasn't come yet. And this is one of the things we need to understand about the life of Christ. Why can he, why does he come in and out? Why is, are are we going to see in John 8, they pick up stones to throw him and everyone, they can't move their arm. It's like, I mean, that's not what the text says. They pick up stones to throw him and Jesus just passes right through. And you could just see these guys, uh, uh, and they just can't, they can't cut it loose, right? Because it wasn't his time. It wasn't his hour yet. And so this is what John is reminding us. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says something similar. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. But notice the fullness of time, born under the law to do what? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of son. So God has a clock. The people here in John 7 don't realize that. They think they're in control. Ha, ha, ha. They're not, right? In fact, you've heard that joke, right? If you ever want to make God laugh, tell him what you're about to do, right? And this is kind of their attitude here. We're going to do what we're doing. No, you're not. Because his hour had not yet come. And this is what's so amazing about our God. and This is what makes just his sovereignty and his ability to move history forward in spite of Yehus all over the world over the course of time. He can balance circumstances, free choices by the Jewish leaders, free choices by the Roman leaders, and many other people's free choices throughout the life of Christ and bring events exactly to pass when he wants them to come to pass that he prophesied about over you know, almost 600 years before. Because when you look at the prophecy in Daniel, I'll just mention this, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, almost 600 years before, God prophesied to the exact timetable of Jesus's death. Again, is God, was he dropping breadcrumbs for the Jewish people? At times he's dropping loaves of bread, loaves, not just crumbs, to see what's going on. And so interestingly enough, This is how the religious leaders respond. Verse 30, they're upset. They sought to take him. Notice how some in the crowd respond. They have the exact opposite response. And generally when Jesus is preached, you generally get two response. And and, and all joking aside, one is all heaven breaks loose because someone trusts in Christ or all hell breaks loose, they get upset that you're preaching Christ. It's kind of similar here. They want to take him to kill him. Look at what others in the crowd in verse 31 say. Many of the people believed in him, and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? The phrase believed in him is, a, is our standard phrase in John, right? Pastuo is the verb to believe, used a hundred times in the book of John. Ice is a preposition. It's got this idea that you're trusting in him. You're relying upon him. It's kind of the idea. And so these people, they've been observing these signs. They've been observing Jesus's words. They say, you know what? I believe in him. I'll trust in him. I'll entrust my eternal destiny to him. Is kind of the, the idea of being communicated here. And so we've got to take the text at face value here. They believed in him. You know, it's, it's only, uh, unfortunately, it's only theologians that qualify faith. It's, it's incredible. It, it, you won't find that in the Bible. You'll find s- statements like ye of little faith, but it, it's really a euphemism for having no faith. So it's kind of like being pregnant, right? Either you're pregnant or you're not. Either you believe or you don't. That's, there's really no in between. You kind of believe you have spurious faith, you have fake faith, you have genuine faith, you have real. The Bible doesn't use those qualifiers. It just says you believe or you don't believe. It's kind of the idea. And so here, these people have believed and they were convinced by the very things that they should have been convinced by. Signs, wonders, miracles, and words of the Messiah. That is exactly what this generation needed to be convinced by. And oh, by the way, To believe in his name meant to just trust in or rely upon who he was, what he had done, what he would do. And there's nothing at all wrong with this response. It's the whole purpose John wrote his book. It's the whole purpose we're studying, the book of John. Look at what John says at the end. He gives us his purpose statement. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. What's written? These signs. And Remember, John has chosen seven signs to specifically record. What's his reason? Notice that purpose statement, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The very purpose of the book of John is to record signs so that you and I would be convinced that we can trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. So there's nothing wrong with them believing as a result of seeing their signs. Now, whether or not they understood everything fully or they were doctrinally sound, that's up for discussion. But the point is this, when they believed in Jesus, that he was their Messiah, that he would deliver them from Gentile oppression and deliver them into the eternal kingdom, that he would solve their sin problem. And that, in that moment, they were saved. They trusted in him to do all of those things, exactly what the Messiah was prophesied that he would do. And again, what convinced them? Well, simply put in the text, we can see it right there. When Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, they were convinced by the signs. I love it too. Imperfect tense. They kept on talking about this. I love it. These, these people are pumped, man. They're, they're excited. I mean, for the first time, they're like, man, we're looking the Messiah in the eye. This is what we learned about all growing up. And here he is. And they're kind, of, they're, they're kind of asking a question, but they're kind of making a statement by asking a question. Almost like, there's no way this guy can't be the Messiah. So it wasn't a question of doubt. It was rather an argument or a statement given in the form of a question to make a point. And they're basically saying, this man has to be the Christ because he's doing so many messianic signs, it couldn't not be him. It's kind of the idea of what they're saying here. It's funny, we've already seen the religious leaders, they're like, verse 30, we've had enough. Like, We're going to start to, well, now they overhear people saying that they believe in Jesus. And they're like, this time we've really had enough. And now now they're going to order the officers to just go get him. Before they're like, they're looking for a way. Now they're like, we're putting this in shoe leather now. We're getting this guy right now. This, this can't go on. They can't believe. And so they get super upset. We're going to see in verse 32. Let's read verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers uh, to take him. So again, they, they, earlier they said they were, gonna, they were seeking to take him. Now They put their plan in motion. Murmuring, uh, another onomatopoeic word in the Greek, is derived from the sound when you're murmuring, you're muttering in a low, indistinct voice, kind of talking under your breath. They heard what some of these people were saying. You might say that they heard the buzz around Jesus. And uh, what had they heard? Well, notice they were murmuring these things. What are these things? Well, exactly what we just talked about. Many people were believing in Jesus. They were saying, could he do more miracle? Could the Messiah do more miracles than this guy's doing? It's gotta be the Messiah. These are the things that they're they're hearing. And so they were frustrated. Jesus is not the Messiah, and they're thinking he's a deceiver. He needs to be stopped in silenced. So they kind of move their plan into action. These officers are interesting. Because you, you start to see different people groups. They're just kind of mentioned on the side. But these officers were sent on, the, on, the full, on a mission with full authority from the Jewish religious leaders. The question becomes, who are the officers? Well... There, was a, there were temple police in addition to Roman garrisons that were around the temple, but the Jews had their own temple police that policed the temple compounds. It's probably these guys. They were responsible to the Sanhedrin, the high court of, of Israel, and most likely they had received a, an arrest warrant, or, or at least a you know, an indication to go arrest them. And so this was their job. This is what they did. They maintained peace. They they arrested deceivers. They uh, arrested, you know, dangerous people. The other group that we have to ID, if you notice, it says the Pharisees and the chief priests. The chief priests, if you kind of want to mark this down, there's something to just a good, good to know in Bible study. This typically refers to the Sadducees. When the Sadducees aren't named by name, they're typically referred to as the chief priests. And the Sadducees during this point in history had control of the temple compound. They were the administrators of the temple compound. So you had both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who by the way, could barely agree on anything. But here's one man they can agree about. We got to get rid of Jesus. We got to... Got to silence this man. And so they're in agreement. They send the officers to get him. The officer's mission was simple. Take hold of him. Use a measure of force if you need to. By any means necessary, grab him, get him away from the pillar. But again, as we've seen, his hour had not yet come. And so these temple officers did not carry out their orders. Again, we read this earlier, but it's just kind of a funny. I, I get a kick out of this, but the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, again, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. And so again, we, what we see here is the tension is rising, but Jesus is untouchable until he's not. God the Father is protecting him and he'll do so for another six months. Six months later, the timing's gonna be perfect. The Father is gonna remove his restraint and they're gonna be able to take him. And we see that when Judas betrays him in the garden, they're gonna take him that night, but they can't do it until then because the timing, the hour has to be right. So let's close there this morning. We'll pick up there next week. Lord, thanks uh, so much for your word. And just as we look at the Lord Jesus and just consider his life and his ministry, may we find, if there are those here today that aren't confident or persuaded, may they find in Jesus Christ everything that they need regarding their salvation from hell and into an eternity in your presence. The the Savior who did everything, who solved the problem for each one of us, may they find in him a person and a work in whom they can trust and rely upon alone to get them there. So grateful for his life, so grateful for what we learn just by observing the way he speaks, the way others speak about him. It's just, it's so exciting to consider the life of the Lord Jesus. So thank you for that opportunity this morning. We pray for everyone as they go on their way that they would be just encouraged by you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.